So I didn't grow up singing that song we just sang, Blessed Be the Tie of Vines, but apparently you guys did, because it sounded awesome. Um, I think it's like a really Baptist song, uh, I think. That's, that's what, I, what I gather. So I did a little research on it, and I find it really beautiful. I find the lyrics really profound. So apparently the author, John Fawcett, had pastored a really small rural church in England, and he accepted the call. He got the call up to the big church in London, and he packed all his bags and packed his family up and preached his last farewell sermon, and they were all gathered, and there wasn't a dry eye around, and his wife whispers to him, grabs him and whispers to him, oh, John, I cannot bear it. I cannot bear this. And he answered, neither can I, and we will not go. Unload the wagons. And they stayed. And then he wrote a song, and it was a really awesome song. It, it, was, it was a song about that moment when he realized that he was, he was bound to a people in a place, bound to God's people in this small church, and he, he could not bear to leave. His wife said, I cannot bear it. This is a song of friendship. It's a song of commitment and covenant and sacrifice. It's a song of mutual sharing and bearing of much pain and much joy. And then the story of that pain and joy working its way out through seasons and days and years and months and weeks and in lifetimes. Today we turn to the friendship of David and Jonathan. A little refresher. Uh, we, we've been talking about Saul's, or Saul's, Saul a little bit, David's life with God this summer in First and Second Samuel. And as a refresher, we, we introduced, um, or Jonathan was introduced prior to when David was introduced. We, we actually didn't talk about it much here because we started in First Samuel 16. But Jonathan fights in his dad Saul's army. He seems very much to have a David kind of fearlessness, you know, or more accurately, a David sort of trust in God. He picks a fight that he's way outnumbered in numbers and in arsenal. And he says, maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. After all, nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether there are many soldiers or few. That sounds really foolhardy, but remember last week we read the story of David and Goliath, right? So maybe they were meant for each other. It's no wonder that following David's defeat of Goliath in the Philistines that Jonathan might want to join forces with David. Not just because David was a great warrior, but because they had that risky sort of God trust in common. I want to invite Sarah to come up and read our scripture This is 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5. As soon as David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan's life became bound up with David's life, and Jonathan loved David as much as himself. From that point forward, Saul kept David in his service and wouldn't allow him to return to his father's household. And Jonathan and David made a covenant together because Jonathan loved David as much as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his armor as well as his sword, his bow, and his belt. David went out and was successful in every mission Saul sent him to do. 
So Saul placed him in charge of the soldiers, and this pleased all troops as well as Saul's servants. This is the word of God. Thanks. So we hear about this start of this friendship, David and Jonathan. It's a friendship that's forged out of trial. We hear today's passage, and perhaps maybe we're even a little uncomfortable with it. I mean, Jonathan seems to go all in for this relationship. We're told that his life becomes bound up with David's life, and Jonathan loves David as much as himself. Aside from the sort of uneasiness that this sort of commitment generates in our commitment-phobic culture, it seems even more risky that Jonathan might want to go all in on a friendship with a guy who has and someday will dethrone his dad. Like, that's the other plot line in this. Following this passage is then a litany, just even later on in chapter 18, of stories about David on the run from Jonathan's father's assaults. Like, when you read the Psalms, and, and the, the psalm writer, and sometimes David, talks about escape and rescue from enemies, he's pleading with God, think David literally ducking Saul's spear, right? Or David leaving a decoy of himself in the bed so he can slip out the back door. This is the kind of threat in David's life. This is the kind of threat that Jonathan is jumping into. In Jonathan, we see someone who's not acting out of self-interest. Someone who's concerned, who is concerned with following hard after what God is doing and where God's doing it, where God's going. If Jonathan's behavior strikes us as impulsive, like he sees David slay Goliath and then he just like becomes a David groupie, that he, he might give up his freedom in order to love and serve and be bound to someone else. It might sound a little impulsive, but it's definitely for the long haul. I'm reminded a little bit in thinking about friendship like this. I'm reminded a little bit of how Diedrich Bonhoeffer talks about friendship. And he talks about how friendship is, is strange. Friendship is weird, and friendship might be the most weak in most uncertain kind of bond that we could have. Think about that. Think about friendships that you have. Think about other relationships that you have. Uh, romantic relationships, family relationships. And Bonhoeffer says, it's weak because unlike marriage or unlike family, there's not a ceremony that binds you to someone. There's not a certificate that lets others recognize your friendship with someone else. And by extension, I think, like, if you go around trying to like say, be my friend, and I'm, I'm going to get this paper notarized to say that you're my friend, that's not going to go well. Trust me, don't try it. I haven't tried it, but I, I don't see that going well. For this reason, friendship is really intimidating, especially in life stages beyond school, beyond elementary school, beyond high school, beyond college for some of us. I remember how hard it was when Rach and I um, independently and then when we got married moved here, how hard it was to find friends, to find a, true friends and especially couple friends that we could say that our lives were bound up in their lives and we loved them as much as ourselves. 
it's, it's hard because you're, there's some pressure behind it. It's also hard to hit that jackpot where you, where you think you can find a couple that you like moderately like both members of the couple, like, especially when you're in grad school. Like it's easy to have grad school friends of similar interests, but those spouses are tough to come by, right? And then there's that weird like determine the relationship moment, right? Like where, where like things are going well, couple dinners in, couple hangouts in, and then you, you feel like you need to ask, like, can we, like, really be friends, you know, like, um, you don't know if you're, like, going to freak them out, you know, by wanting to be their friends too much too soon. And I find it funny that I'm considering thinking all this stuff. Um, after the last couple weeks, we've had visits from some, Rachel and I, from some of our best friends in the world, friends that, um, friendships that we developed up here after that initial anxiety, after years even of, of trying to find friends. And then those friends, this is indicative of this area that we live in, those friends moved away on us. They just left us. But we host, we've hosted these friends in our house and these are certainly friends that we can say our lives are bound. We love them more, at the very least, as much as ourselves. Their trips have shown me how precious these bonds are, how, how much they're a grace to us. How hard it is to make friends at this stage of life where there's bedtimes and diapers to think about, or jobs and travel, or maybe even more difficult, how hard it is to make friends with people whose life and schedules and concerns aren't like yours. Maybe that's the biggest challenge. Maybe that's also the biggest call, is to try to bind your life up with a life that doesn't really look like yours. Friendships like this make me, make me more than I am on my own. Friendships like this, uh, as I reflect on these couple visits, they, they, they confirm in me the strengths and the gifts that sometimes I can't or don't see in myself. They sand down the edges of, of pride or the things that, that I don't like or that aren't me. They speak power and love and sanity into my spirit of fear. Sometimes with their words, but mostly with just their presence. With just being there. Just standing with. This is what a bound friendship looks and feels like. Being truly known. Being known like warts and all. I think that's significant um, in the scene with Jonathan and David that, that Jonathan commits to David and then he strips off all the armor. He disarms himself in front of David. He, he wants to be known and, and because a bound friendship is to be known and loved in spite of weaknesses, maybe because of weakness. I think that's how friendship can witness to the gospel, right? Can, can be almost a, a sign, a sacrament of the gospel, is that friendship is so strong because of its weakness, because of its frailty, because... Because friendship only, that kind of friendship only happens when two people will be fragile and frail and vulnerable with each other. When we've invested fragile lives in each other, completely counting the cost and the danger. 
Sure, David and Jonathan's friendship happens in the wake of a great victory. David had an amazing victory over the gigantic forces of fear and death manifested in Goliath. But this friendship is also born on the, on the doorstep of a great trial that that victory sets in motion. David's obedience to God, his slaying of Goliath, puts him more deeply at risk with Saul. Saul gets even more jealous. Even, we find out in the next couple of chapters, even insane with jealousy. This is the first domino that's been tipped. That that episode of violence then begets more violence and Jonathan's still all in. This is like becoming friends with someone who you just found out had terminal cancer and saying, like, I want to go through that with you. That he would risk his life. Friendship for for Jonathan is more than a matter of life and death. Jonathan's life was now bound up with David's life. And David's death could very possibly spell Jonathan's death. They were friends with a lot in common. They also volunteered to have everything in common. Maybe that's a good definition of friendship, like a good working definition for us. To become a a friend is to become someone who volunteers to have everything in common with someone whom they may or may not have a whole lot in common. David and Jonathan had this deep, abiding friendship based on the foundation of their love of God, based on their participation in his rule of his people to act through Israel to bless and bring peace and justice to all of the rest of creation. I think of maybe the most, maybe the most well-known kind of way that Christians conceive of, of friendship in terms that C.S. Lewis writes, that friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, wait, you too? I thought no one else but myself, dot, 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 right? And so for Jonathan and David, that you too is an obedience to God. You too? I can't help but think how fitting it is that David might experience this sort of bond. Like, I don't think this came out of nowhere. I think it's part of a story. It's part, of, it's part of the story that we get when we read about David's great-grandmother, Ruth, a Moabite. This is perhaps one of the most famous Bible stories about what it means to be a friend. We find Ruth committing in friendship to her widowed mother-in-law. They, they connect, they bond in their grief, they gaze towards the rescuing God of Israel together. As Naomi tries to discourage Ruth's friendship, Ruth acting a whole lot like Jonathan, Ruth rebuffs her. She says, don't urge me to abandon you. Don't urge me to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more if, I, if even death separates me from you. 
when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking with her about it. She said, okay. <laughs> if, there's such a, if there's such a thing, we find a, a lineage here in David, a, a, a history, a family tree of this sort of rugged determination to be for someone other than ourselves, to bind our lives up with someone for whom we don't share blood, we don't share sex. This is rather an, an intimacy born from a covenanted commitment that I'm going to be there. I'm going to give you all of me. Your people are now my people. I'm going to take on even your family problems. Your God is my God, even unto death. If there's a family tree of friendship in David's line, I think we see that commitment, that friendship, transmitted through David's line to Jesus, the one who embraces God's friendship, who embraces and embodies God's friendship with humanity. It's Jesus who puts flesh on the God who spoke to Moses face to face like a friend. It's Jesus who asks us to love each other as he has loved us because no one has a greater love than to give one's life up for one's friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from the Father I've made known to you. And I think... I think, again, there Jesus is witnessing to this fact that friendship is so fragile. It doesn't exist out of anything but grace, but that makes it so strong, so powerful. Powerful enough that that's how he relates with humanity. That's how he brings us into relationship with God. This is an all-in committed love. That rather than saying, you're mine, so I love you. I think that's what we do a lot. We think, and I think we project that sort of love on God, that God would say, you're mine, so I love you. That's how we are. Our love wanes when we're tired or we're hurt or we've had a falling out, we, we walk away. Our friendships are based on our ability to hold them together. She's in a very good ability. So when we're hurt, or when we hurt, or when we betray, or when we are betrayed, our friendships sever. They, they break, they become irreconcilable, or, or we just leave. Like, we're so mobile, we just walk away. Seemingly no strings attached. But God's love, God's love shown to us in Jesus in three dimensions, in space and time, in Jesus... David's great-great-great-great-great-grandson is more of a I-love-you-because-you're-mine sort of love. A love that says we're bound to each other. Therefore, I love you. You may bore me or wound me or otherwise become unattractive to me, but that doesn't mean that I'll walk away. I'll stick. I'm bound. 
And friends, many of you have tried this sort of love and failed. <laughs> many of you have, have tried that and it just opened you up to the sort of emotional hell and torment that no one should have to go through. And that's the risk. That, again, is friendship's fatal flaw and unbelievable virtue. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down ourselves for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.16. The other 3.16. Some of you have been in the dealing end of that situation. Some of you have walked with others through seasons of that sort of betrayal, that sort of hurt, that sort of abuse. This is the very real risk of a life of friendship, a life of opening oneself up, of bearing and binding yourself to another person who's fearfully and wonderfully crafted, but also completely sinful and broken. This is the risk that Jesus bore in full in order to make his enemies into his friends, into God's friends. This is the commitment and the, the friendship that's held out to us each and every moment of each and every day. That Jesus volunteers to have everything in common with us. For us to have everything in common with Jesus. And, and as we grow in Christ-likeness, we have more and more in common with Jesus. Us. The ones who were once hostile to God and His plans are now bound to Him as He lovingly binds Himself to us. This is God in human flesh. Jesus saying with Ruth, wherever you will go, I will go. Wherever you will stay, I'll stay. And where you die, I will die and be buried. Jesus enters even into our death that we might be joined to his life and be raised and filled by his spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. This is Jesus standing like David before Jonathan, before us, asking us to disarm ourselves. Asking us to, to lay down our armor, lay down our sword and our belt and our bow and join him. Join ourselves to him. To lay down our lives and lay open our hearts to God, to others, because that's what our king has done for us. Will you pray with me? Lord, We are challenged and comforted by this vision of friendship, this, this fact that our small, fragile human friendships might be a sign and a foretaste and an instrument of your cosmic friendship with us. Father, like Jonathan, Bind us to your side. Jesus, bind us to your side. Jesus, like Jonathan, let us commit ourselves to becoming closer and more intimately bound as friends, as your friends. Lord, like Jonathan, let us follow you into this world of suffering and even 
death, that we might have life, that we might bear witness to your victory over sin and death. Let us follow you in that. Lord, like Jonathan, give us the courage to break bonds of fear and violence and join our whole selves, our very lives, our desires, our futures to you, the true Israel, the coming King. We ask all this in the name of our true heavenly friend, Jesus. Amen.